Please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. reading verses 15, 16, and 17. The word of the Lord reads, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Father, again, we ask for your help this morning. Pray that we would hear from you and you alone and have your way in us. In Jesus' name. Common question among Christians revolves around the assurance of salvation. How can I know? How can I be sure that I am saved? How can I know if I were to die right now, I would go to be with the Lord in heaven? This is a common question, one that maybe even you have had or still have. And assuming there's not unrepentant or secret sin in their life, there's still doubt even amongst believers. How can I know? And the short answer to this critical question is... I can't give you that assurance. And in fact, no man can give you that assurance. No person can grant you the assurance that you are saved. But the Spirit can. The Spirit can, the Spirit does, and the Spirit will. That the Spirit is the one who grants salvation, grants the assurance of that salvation. Romans 8 Chapter 8, verse 16 reminds us, it says that the Spirit himself does what? He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So who testifies? Who grants you that assurance? The Spirit does with your spirit that you are sons, you are children of God. And so even though the Spirit does grant that assurance, it still does not absolve us of our responsibility to examine ourselves. To see if we're in the faith, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 reminds us, that you are called to still examine yourself. But how do we examine ourselves? I mean, if the Spirit is the one who grants this assurance, then how can I be sure? Do I wait for this this subtle and this this silent whisper of the Spirit? Did I hear it? Did did he give it to me? Was that a whisper? Was that that a demon? Was that God? Like, what was that? Did someone just open a door? Like, how how do I know? Is this some subjective feeling? This is my own self-deceived flesh? But hear this. Scripture is true. The Spirit does testify. But we must ask then, how does he testify? How does he testify and grant us the assurance that we are children of God? Well, one way he does this, in the same context of Romans 8, in verse 15... He says that we have received a spirit of adoption from him. He says in verse 15 that you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And what happens now that you have received that spirit of adoption, believer? That now, he says, you cry out, Abba, Father. 
that the spirit of adoption now to the believer communicates now this true desire that the one born of God now has a new relationship and that relationship there manifests itself by saying, Abba, Papa, Father. That the true child of God sincerely cries out to this God in humility and dependence, Father. That that was not a cry that the child of disobedient cried. But now a child of God cries, Father, Papa, that there is a new relationship. This is echoed in Galatians 4, verse 6. Because you are sons of God, he sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The sincere, dependent, humble heart of the regenerated cry this cry to God. The child of God cries out, Father, in dependence. This is the genuine cry of one who knows him as Papa. Because the proud, the externally religious, they don't know this cry. It's all about formulaic prayers. It's all about structure. It's all about looking. But there is no genuine unveiling of the heart before this God that they depend upon day in and day out. The Spirit testifies with that cry. A second way he testifies is this is he gives evidences and he testifies of our sonship through the evidences of our life. In the same context, Romans 8, verse 14 says that for all who, who, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, that these are sons of God. So he testifies by the evidence in our life, that those who are being led by God, these are sons of God, right? So, so what do you see in someone who is led by the Spirit? What do you see? The fruits of the Spirit, If the Spirit is leading this person, then I better see this fruits of the Spirit, right? That another testimony here is the evidence there that being led by the Spirit, well, who is that? That's a child of God. That he testifies through the evidences of the Spirit working in our life. That the increasing obedience in the believer's life is wrought by the Spirit. So that when I see the believer's life, I see the fruit of that. And where's that fruit coming from? From this spirit that washed them, that regenerated them, and now produces in them the fruits that look like the spirit. So we can ask it this way. It's here in our passage before us in 1 John chapter 2 is one of these evidences. Is one of these evidences that the spirit is working in you. And what is that evidence? I can, can narrow it down to this one word. Love. Love. If I can ask it this way, what do you love? What do you love? Because what a person loves will tell you all about that person. What a person love loves tells me all I need to know about that person. I mean, a husband who says he loves his wife, but yet mistreats her, neglects her, sleeps around. Does he love his wife? No, he says he loves her. Words don't matter, but I can tell you by what he does, does he love this woman or not? What do you love? What do you love? That tells us all that we need to know about the person. Because this is true, The passage before us this morning, it it seeks to guard us against one of the dangerous objects 
dangerous objects of love that really reveals the true state of a person. And what is this object? It's the world. The world. Now, before we go even further, in case you missed it, here's just the groundbreaking, the, the deepest profundity. Scientists can't grasp it. Philosophers can't even explain it. Here's the deepest truth here that you need to see. Don't love the world. <laughs> you catch it? <laughs> so deep, right? <laughs> I spent hours thinking of that. <laughs> Don't love the world. I mean, that here is the central command of this passage. Don't love the world. So simple and yet so essential for us to grasp is do not love the world, period. Now, the reason why John writes this is is because the world will seek to entice you. If you don't understand that, you don't know it, that the world is seeking to entice you, the pressures of people in the world, the culture within the world, the speech in the world, it's all in your face. There is a constant draw, even upon believers, to come to the world and to love the things in the world. There is a constant draw, a constant pulling of your heart. And if you do not realize that, it may have already started to seep in your heart. The world is constantly seeking you. And so he says here, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love it. Like we just have to understand this basic, so essential, important truth here that John wants to convey to these believers. Do not love the world. And then in the rest of these verses, he basically gives reasons of why you shouldn't love the world. Why should you abstain? Why should you not love this world? What we're going to do simply is just see the three reasons that he gives for us. And these three reasons are to guard against this love of the world and thereby vindicate your assurance. Three reasons to guard against this love and thereby vindicate your assurance. That by the end of this passage, I pray that we would search our hearts that we would truly ask of your own soul, what do you really love? At the end of the day, you can fool everybody. You can't fool God. What do you love? The first reason is a love for the world is incompatible with Christianity. A love for the world is, is incompatible with Christianity. I mean, this is like the classic picture of oil and water that they cannot and they do not mix. And he says very clearly that you cannot love the world and love the Father. That if anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father father is not in him. Now, it's important for us to define terms because what do we mean when we say, you know, don't love the world? What What are we even talking about? This love here he uses is the familiar term to us, the agape love. And this love here is not just a a simple emotional love or an association, but this idea of love refers to loyalty, of association. What are you loyal to? What are you associated with? What are you attached to? That this love is not just external, although it produces external effects, 
But he's referring to what really grips your heart. What has you? What really consumes you? What are you loyal to? What do you attach yourself to? In other words, like what is your creed? So what do you love? This love is the attachment, this loyalty love that you give anything for. And yet here, if we're honest here, Scripture itself says that that God so loved the world. And he gave his his son for the world in John 3.16. So if if God loved the world and even gave his his son for the world, then is God here prohibiting us from doing something that he already did? He says, if God loved the world, what, what is he talking about? So are we to not love the world in the same way? We have to not only define love, but we must define what he means by when he says love the world. What is he talking about by world? What world? And in scripture, there are basically three different categories that give us an understanding of what world is. It's used in three different ways. This, this idea of world, this cosmos in the Greek, where we get the idea of universe. That what is this, this world that he's speaking of? The first way it's used is the world in, in terms of this, the literal earth and the creation. Think of Acts chapter 17, verse 24, and when Paul is on Mars Hill and he, he's speaking as he's appealing to these, these, these pagan worshipers, he says here, we know God made the, the world, the universe, all the creation. That this cosmos is referring to just the creation itself, the world. But it's also used secondly, like I just referenced in John 3.16, in terms of the human race in general. There's the human race in general as being image bearers of God. That God so loved the world. That he's speaking of the people in general. That as image bearers of God, that he loved the people in general. And that he sent his son. So it's not only used of just the, the universe to creation, but also the people therein this cosmos. But there's also a third way that world is used. And it's used in referring to the the evil system that is opposed to God and his righteousness in the world. That this evil system that's opposed to God. And even in 1 John, this, this understanding of this third idea of world is referenced often in this book. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, He says that, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God and such that we are. And for this reason now, the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know him. The world does not know him. And so it does not know us. He references the world again in chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. And at the end of this book in Verse 19, chapter 5, it says that we know that we are of God and that the whole world, the whole cosmos, lies in the power of the evil one. That he's speaking of this world here, that this world that is so ingrained and steeped and affected by sin here, it lies within the power of the evil one. That ever since the fall in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, that ever since there, mankind now is infected with this disease of sin. And it has killed every single person under that curse. And the world is impacted by it. And it lies under the power of the evil one. And so when he's saying here, do not love the world, what he's saying here is do not have any attachment, any loyalty to this evil system that corrupts this whole universe. He's referring to that kind of love, to that world. Because the world itself was created good, amen? That man himself was created good. The problem is not, we don't hate material things. 
when we realize what's impacted these material things, it's sin. That the world was created good, but now sin reigns. That's why it's been alluded to even this morning about what it looked like for us even before Christ. That before we were saved in Christ, how do we used to walk? That we all walked according to the spirit and the course of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. And we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That we were before Christ, steeped in this world, dead in our sin, we walked in the world and like the world. Like that was our true nature before Christ saved us. So to love the world is to love the sin and the evil system that just dominates this world. And he says, do not love the world. He uses a present tense. This is a continuous idea of love that the person is marked by this loyalty to the world. In other words, you look at their life and you see time and time again, their life is just marked by this love of this world. I'm not talking about just shortcomings here, fallings here, but this person's life has a mark of loyalty to this world that I can just tell they wear a badge of worldliness. And you can't love God and the world. This is not new to us. But he's saying here, and he's making a sharp distinction, that the one who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. That the person who is marked by this kind of love is really just self-deceived. Because they can say, I love God. Yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I prayed a prayer. I was even baptized in front of many witnesses. But really what happened, there was never a change of life that they continued the same pattern of sin and they continued the same rebellion. There was no change. Their loyalty and their affections continued. They stayed in the dark. And even though they said they love God, their life testified that they love this world. And John is saying here, you're a liar. You love the world and you do not love the father you can't have both and matthew 6 24 says you cannot serve what two masters right you either hate one and love the other that you can only have one master it would be an unimaginable contradiction for a carnal christian to exist And that's what even some believe, that there can be a carnal Christian, one who is just living in sin, but yet they know Jesus as Savior, but really he's not Lord of their life. And what scripture says is that it's a lie from the pit of hell, and many are falling into it. That there is no such thing as a carnal Christian, one who lives a life marked in sin, loyal to their sin, and are actually saved by the Savior. You can't have them as Savior if you do not have them as Lord. But still, I think we know this. Let's ask the question now. Can a Christian, a blood-washed, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, walking in the Spirit, can a Christian love the world? At times, yes. Who is he writing to? Believers. Believer. That's you. It's me. Can you love the world at times? Yes. And so what is he saying? Do not love it. (laughs) Because it's a true temptation. At times, yes. This is why he's warning against it. And what John is saying, he's not saying to detach yourself from the world completely, but don't be of this world. He's not saying just be a monk somewhere in this monastery 
He's not calling this a complete separation from the world, but for an inner attitude of separation from the sinful world and its practices. That believer, you should be different from this world. You should not look like you are part of this world. If you go to a party of world, you should not look like it. They should not be able to say, you fit in really well. That you should stand out. That you do not look like it. And as the Lord prays in John 17 in his high priestly prayer in verse 15, he prays for his church. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You have to understand here how important this is. This, this simple, concise verse right here is a theme of all of Scripture. That God's people have always been and always are and always should be separate from the world. And he is speaking to us, believers. We need to hear this word from God because this is a warning. This is a temptation to all of us to love the world and to love the things that are in the world. And that is a constant temptation for you and for me. And we need to be guarded against this reality because the world will always cry out. Your flesh will always want it. And you need to crucify that flesh. And what he's warning here against is loving that world because we are to be holy. We are to be holy. And I I, I just want us to see from even in history, God's people have always been set apart. You realize that? That when God saves a wretched, undeserving people, he always intends to set them apart so they do not look like the world he pulled them out of. Amen? Amen? that they're called to be holy. In Exodus chapter six, when Israel enslaved and in bondage to Egypt, in Egypt, what did God do? He says in chapter six, verse six, say therefore to the sons of Israel, what do you say? I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see what all that he did? These unworthy people, I will take you out. Who's going to free you? Who's going to redeem you? And not only that, I'm going to give you possessions. Why? So you can still look like Pharaoh. So you can still pay homage to Egypt. No. What did I do for you? What did I do in bringing you out of bondage, even spiritual bondage and captivity, just so you can look like the sin you once cherished? What an abomination that we are to call to be holy. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, he tells them, you are to be what? Holy. Why? Because I am holy. That you are to be holy as I am holy which is, again, repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he's speaking about the privilege now of new covenant believers in Christ. 
And then now in Christ, you have these privileges of being God's people, a royal priesthood who are zealous for good works. He says in 1 verse 9 of 1 Peter that you are a chosen race, a real priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like what all did God do for you, beloved? How moved are you at the mighty salvation of God, this God who saved you, that you were hopeless, that you were in a desperate state, and you could not even save yourself? And what did God do in his compassion and mercy? That he reached down with an outstretched arm and brought you out of that pit of hell. And he brought you up, and he lifted you out, and he washed you, and he cleansed you. And beyond that, he poured upon you righteousness, and he gave to you an inheritance, an eternal inheritance at that. And that is what he's done for you. And would you go there, and that God who lifted you out of his hand, would you bite his hand and slap him in his face and return back to the world? And yet, that's what we do every single time when we cherish the sin and the things of this world. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 says that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification, which is holiness. He's called you for holiness, to be more like him. And so do not love the world or the things in the world, because this is completely incompatible with Christianity, with true Christianity. We were called out of the world. Because this is true, do you ever wonder how strange it is that even in our evangelistic methods, how much we seek to draw and entice the world by looking more like the world? Like, this message is too too harsh. Let me soften it. Better yet, let's go to a bar and just drink beer with them, and let's just get tipsy and just share Jesus. Like, let's be one of them. Jesus did it, right? He hung out with tax collectors. and Let's just do that. Let's just look more worldly so that we can appeal more to them. Because then they'll see, oh, we're just not a bunch of stiff-necked people. Then we're not judgmental. Yes, I can do that too. Oh, is that hookah? Oh, great. Yeah, let's look more like the world. Like, then we can reach the world, and then they'll love us because they'll see how Jesus is cool. And so now we have built up this, this social club because now it's open to everybody. You know, just, just do what you want. Love a little Jesus, and we're cool. Like, how strange is that? That we're called to be set apart, to be holy, and yet we want to look more like this world so that people are more drawn to Jesus. That's not how it works. I'm not trying to be legalistic about any alcohol or any of those things, but I'm trying to get the point here is how much do we subtly just try to soften the blow of the gospel so it's more appealing to the world? But what God does here is he opens the door and he snatches his own. He says, come to me, you are mine. And they see him, they say, there's nowhere else I want to go. You have to trust God's hand. 
And we don't want to look like the world. In fact, we want to be holy, to love Christ, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to be faithful to proclaim what he has proclaimed, and let him do the work. That we want to be set apart and look like him. So that if Israel did that, the nations would come and they would say, who is this God that you serve? Everything in this world is incompatible with Christianity. So to love the world, as James 4.4 says, you love the world is to be an enemy of God. Can't have both. Can't have both. But second reason he gives here is, is not only is a love for the world incompatible with Christianity, but a love of the world reveals your true identity. It reveals your true identity. Remember, this love is not just an emotional love, but, but one that demonstrates itself in allegiance and loyalty. It's not just an emotional love, but it demonstrates itself in this allegiance and loyalty to what it loves. But hear this, this loyalty demonstrates itself in desires, in actions, in speech, through its time, through its priorities, and many more ways. And so, yes, he's talking here about this love that shows attachment and loyalty. But let's ask the question, how do I know what I'm loyal to? How do I know what this person is loyal to? How do I know where they've sworn allegiance? Well, you look at their desires. You look at their priorities. You look at their calendar. You look at their bank account. You look at their purposes, you look at their goals, you look at their life. In other words, you see the fruit of that, right? That you, I can tell what someone is by what I see. I don't care what you say. If I tell you to go to In-N-Out and I want a double-double and you come back and you bring me a Big Mac, we fighting. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't care if you tell me that this Big Mac is a double-double. Like, I know what a double-double looks like. I can smell it coming in the door. Like, I, I know fresh meat. I know, I know grass-fed meat and beef. I, I know it when it moves. I can tell. Like, I know the fresh lettuce and the crisp lettuce and the tomato when you take a bite and you just taste the freshness. But if you bring me a Big Mac, no, I know where that's coming from. Like, I, I can taste the plastic. Like, I, I know the difference. I don't care what you call it. You, you can call it a double-double until you die. But how am I going to know? Because I see it. I smell it. It's clear as day. And that's really what he's getting at here. Because the love for the world really does reveal your true identity. No matter what you say, no matter what, what you're claiming, what we see, what you produce, or what you love, tells us the truth. That's why he says, for all that is in the world, in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So where is this coming from? Where are these desires coming from? Is, is it coming from this love of the Father? And he's saying a hard no. But these loves, these desires, these lusts are coming from the world. And if it's coming from the world and this life is marked with these things, it tells me that you have not come from heaven, but you've come from hell. Like it gives the true identity, the true source of what this person really is about. 
Now, immediately when we hear the command, do not love the world, let's be honest. How do many people, and even these kind of messages about loving the world, how do many people interpret this message of do not love the world? They hear it, and they'll say, yeah, do not love the world. All right, yeah, I get it. So do not smoke, drink, and chew or grow out with girls that do, right? I get it, right? I'm covered. Like, do not do the obvious things of the world, and do not look so much like the world. I, yeah, I, I, I can do that. I can pass the test. I can pass the high test. That's high level, right? I don't, I don't do the obvious things. I don't look like the world, right? I'm good. I'm covered. We hear that, but it's really it's essentially saying, like, okay, I don't have too much fun. So I, I'm going to have fun, but I'm not going to have too much fun, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy myself in this life, but I'm not going to enjoy myself too much because that's worldliness. So I'm just going to, I'm going to cover and protect myself just enough so you can't really say I love the world because I don't do the obvious things, right? I, I, I don't look like that. I don't look like that church. Like those Christians in that church, yeah, they're not really serious. Like I, I, I fit in just enough. So what I'll do is I'll be just enough associated with the church so that I don't go to hell. Like I, I'll just be... Part of it just enough, just so I can just have some sort of a fire, fire safe, right? But just enough in the world so that I'm not too worldly. Like, I'm going to find that little balance here. So what does that look like? I'm going to be in the church, but I'm not going to be of the church. Yeah, you'll find me there. You'll see me there, but I'm really not a part of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the church, but I don't love it. I don't care about the people. Yeah, you can find me there. Yes, I, I go to here. I'm, I'm a part of this church. I do this. I, I look Christian enough, but I don't look worldly enough either. So I'm safe here. We're going to find this middle ground here. So I'm, I feel safe. My conscience, my conscience is eased just enough. But here, it's just deceit. Because worldliness is not just about these external, obvious things. What, Paul, what John is concerned about is really at the core of it, what is your lust and your desires producing? Because hear me in this. When scripture uses the same term here in verse 16 for lust, it's used in good ways and bad ways. For example, 1 Timothy 3, if anyone desires lust for the office of an overseer, he's desiring a good thing. That there are many good things that we should desire and long for. But also the same term, epithemia, is used for, for lust in a sinful way. And here he's going after here, not just the obvious things here, but he's saying here the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. All of these things go deeper to the externals and it really gets into the question of, of what, do you, what are you lusting and desiring for? What do you really crave? That you will have desires all the time. I hope you realize that. No, no matter where you're at, you're always going to have desires. But the question is, what are those desires stemming from and what are they producing? Either good desires, wicked desires. And so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, these are not fruits of the spirit is what he's saying. That if, you, if these mark your life, this is not from God. That's not from the spirit. That's from the world. And it really shows where you came from. You came from McDonald's. Right? No one wants to go there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So where are you from? 
John 8, 44, when Jesus is, is condemning them, he says that you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. In other words, your father will dictate your desires. You get me on that? That whoever your father is will dictate your desire. You're going to look like the son of the father, right? You're going to do the wishes of the father. And so the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, these are coming from the father. And so how is this one of the world characterized? He says the lust of the flesh, first and foremost. So that these lusts, these cravings, these longings, and these desires, and they come from the flesh. And so what is he talking about? This can refer to, to all kinds of sin. This lust of the flesh is focused on, on self, and it pursues its own end. I mean, this includes greed, immorality, jealousy, st- stealing, etc. These are like the cravings of the heart. And I think when we hear this lust of the flesh, it primarily brings to mind sexual sins, and that's included. But it's also including just the idea of any lust of the flesh. You think of Galatians 5 when it talks about these are the lusts of the flesh, right? These are fruits of the flesh. How do you see that when you contrast that with the fruits of the Spirit? Of immorality, impurity, of, of greed, of, of, of desires, of dissension and strife and jealousy. Like all of these things come from the flesh, Laziness, you can take it further. Prayerlessness, lack of spiritual discipline, all of these can be categorized as lust of the flesh. Because what it's doing is feeding the sinfulness, the selfishness of the flesh. That even things of just laziness in in our spiritual walk, we're prone to just coast through life because I'm just overwhelmed, I'm burdened, or I'm just tired. I just don't feel like it. Lack of obedience really stems from a lust of the flesh that is seeking its own selfish end. And so therefore I just do what I want. And so I crave in and give to what my desires are. This is coming from the world. The lust of the eyes, it's referring to what we're enticed by and what we see. And then we're drawn to it. Like you see this this idea of celebrity, of riches, popularity, this glamorous life, this pure relaxation. I I see all this, this glitz and glamour of what I can have outside of Christ. Look at what this world has. Look what they have. Like look at all, that's what I want. Like I'm drawn to that because I see it. And Matthew 6.23 describes the eye as being the lamp of the body. And so if, if the body is good, we, we see and we desire what is good. But if the body is bad, if the heart is contaminated, we're going to see what is wicked and desire and long for that. So the eyes can be full of adultery, can be full of desire, can be full of greed, can be full of covetousness, anything. He's saying, what do you see and what you cling to? Think of the picture of David on this rooftop when he saw Bathsheba and his, his eyes were enticed by her and he was drawn to that. But in many ways, what our sin does, we see and we long for it because it's coming from a heart that is desiring that which is contrary to God. And yes, of course, the sinner lives this lifestyle. The sinner lives indulging his flesh. The sinner lives just going after what he sees and desires and just living for that in allegiance. But even so, believer, That you can be tempted by your desire for comfort, for ease, for sensuality, 
for whatever it is before you, the secret thoughts and inclinations. I just want a break. I just want peace. I just want a different life. Can, can, can he get better? Can she change? Will my kids get? I, I just want all of this. And really it just pours out of this selfishness that can plague us if we're not careful. That I want what I want. And because it's wanting what I want, that I'm willing to do anything to get it. And we can easily fall to that. So not only that, but he talks about the pride of life. This really connects with the pride of life, the one who's, who's boasting in the things of this world. And though he may not verbally boast about the confidence and the possession and his riches that he has, there is an inward confidence of what he has, that he trusts in the things of this world, that he's boasting in what he has, what he's earned. He has confidence and comfort in what he has. I know it goes without saying, it's, it's not wrong to have possessions. As we know, the old adage, you have possessions, but they shouldn't have you. But one who's prideful, this one, this pride of life is, is one who boasts in them, these things of this world as though he's earned them, as though they are his and they belong to him. And so as a result, they're going to be stingy with them. Right? In 1 John in, in 3.17, it talks about one who has these things and, and does not share, does not open his heart. Because they're his. So this boastful pride of life, it works itself out when I define myself and others to others in, in terms of achievements, possessions, successes. In all this, I'm, I'm identifying myself with what I have, what I've earned, where I've come from. My comfort, my, my confidence is in my bank account, my 401k, my security, my job title, my comforts, that even the desire for the relaxation that overwhelms us at times and comfort and ease, this is boasting in the pride of life that all these things of the world that God has given to steward, we now love and cling to as though it's mine and I must protect it. And so therefore I trust in it, I hope in it, I rest in it, and really therefore I'm boasting in it. And he wants you to note how even all of these three areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not new to mankind. This is not a new sin. In fact, it's very old. In, in Genesis chapter 3, you know, how, did, how did Eve process this temptation? How did she process this? When the serpent tempted her to eat from the tree that God told her not to eat from. In chapter 3, verse 6 in Genesis, it says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, then she took and ate of it. Her flesh was at play. The eyes drew her in. And what no, even more is wise. Be wise like God? I'm going to know better? Like you see how she was drawn in by all of these things in this one simple account. This, this, this clear account here of how sin plagued mankind. And ever since then, that you are going to be tempted to satisfy the flesh, the delight of your eyes, 
the boastful pride of life. Now what we have to remember, believers, is that the desire for the world and the things in the world are going to be an ever, a never-ending temptation for you. The desire to please your flesh, to just do what feels good, to follow your heart, to, to, to go after yourself, to see, go after what you see, to take confidence in what you can see versus in the one who gave it to you. These are going to be never-ending desires. But hear this, believer. Believers need to build tombs where others build tabernacles. The world will seek to exalt and find hope in these places. Believer, you must die to self in every avenue here to find that these will never please you. Again, does it mean you can't enjoy the things of the world? No. Uh, I think it's the way Thomas Thomas Watson put it this way. He calls us to starve off the world. Starve the flesh. Starve the world. And he says that as a boat there is, is helped by the sea and the water is useful for the boat to getting to its destination, so can also the material things of the world for the believer. In other words, just as a boat there is moved by the, the waves of the sea and the waters, riches and material things of this life are not inherently sinful for you, believer. In fact, they can be helpful in our journey. It can be helpful in our life. That material things are are profitable. They're even used to support others. They're even used even in ease of life to feed us, to comfort us, to cover us. These are not bad and wicked in and of themselves. But the danger is, believer, is when not only the boat is riding across the waters, but the danger happens when the water gets in the boat. And in that scenario, when the riches overwhelm and come and they, they, they starve out the heart and, and claim residence in our heart so that no longer are we using these as resources, as stewardship, and even enjoy them at times, but now they have become possessions of my heart and I will cling to them and I would not let them go because they're mine. And if they're gone, if there is a threat of them being gone, I will become unstable, I will become anxious, I will become worrisome, I'll do anything I can to, to save it then that's when the water has come in the boat. And when water comes in the boat, it overwhelms and tears down that boat. So they're not bad in and of themselves, but when they cling and take in the soul is this danger. These lusts reveal the real you. I want to move to the third reason he gives for us in verse 17. That a love for the world is impermanent. A love for the world is impermanent. The world will never keep its promise. It never keeps its promises. It offers you everything, but it delivers nothing. I think we need to hear this and to be reminded of it. Because the temptation and draw is to the world, an ongoing temptation. But we have to see with renewed eyes that the world will always promise you everything, but it will deliver you nothing. It will deliver the shining gold sparkling platter with cyanide inside. That it will give you and offer you everything, but ultimately it gives death. It offers nothing. 
The most deceitful thing that you can believe about your desires is that they will bring you lasting satisfaction and secure comfort. And that's the biggest lie that we can believe. And so he says in verse 17 that the world is it's passing away. It's not permanent. It's passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. He says that this verb in passing away, it's a present tense again. And it means literally to disappear. That it indicates here the world is, is already in the process of self-destruction, if you will. That the world and the things of the world, the lust and the desires, they're not going to last forever. And the deceitful temptation is that we think it will grant us everything. And I will go after sin just one more time. I will just harbor this little small stake of sin here just in my closet just for a little bit. Because this will just keep me a little bit happy. But really at the end it offers nothing but the sting of death. That the world is passing away. That it's not lasting. And we often believe that it will grant me satisfaction. But we believe the lie and we take of the tree every single time. You can't live your life with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Either you're following Christ or you're following the world. It is that simple. I think we understand that. We're either following Christ or following the world. We can't live two feet in both. So which one are you following? Because here's the point here. He says at the end of verse 17 that the one who, who does the will of God lives forever. So he contrasts here the passing nature of the world, that it is in self-destruction and its lust are going away, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. And not to belabor the point, but he's making the point that the life that is marked, again, present tense, the one who does the will of God. So he's not talking about the one who lives perfectly, the one who lives without blemish, the one who lives righteously. But he's saying here, the one whose life is marked by living the will of God lives forever. So how do we know what the will of God is? The context governs much for us because it means to walk in obedience as he says in this book, to love one another, to abstain from the lust and the pride of worldliness. And ultimately here, to, to, to obey and to live and to walk in the will of God means to obey his revealed will and his word. That the one who walks and lives according to the word, to the Father, lives forever. And why does that person do that? Because the Father has given them a heart to do so. That they have crucified their flesh And they live for him because they've been saved by him. And in this book, as as you probably know, as he contrasts the one who walks in darkness versus the one who's walking in light. That to walk in darkness refers to this ongoing, continuous nature of sin, of walking in sin, in contrast to the one who's walking in the light. The one who walks in the light, we're not saying here this person here is living perfectly and righteously, but their life is not marked with sin, rather... Their life is marked with repentance. And why is their life marked with repentance? Because they realize the fact that, yes, Christ has saved me, but yet I realize I fail this Savior day in and day out. That my sin still craves and desire, my flesh still craves and desires for sin. That I am still weak and fragile and I still fail him because I see his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness and I cannot live to that. And so I cling to Christ and I turn to him in faith and repentance every day rejoicing the fact that he paid it all. 
And so because that's true, I live and my life is marked with repentance where I continually turn from my sin and I turn to this Christ. And the life there is marked by this repentance. Now again here, I, I realize here, this is one of those sermons here that is, it's, it's really pointed here and it's very poignant and direct here. But I, believer, I really want you to hear this and the fact that, remember, John is writing to whom? Believers. Right, he's writing to believers. Right, keep that in fact. He's saying, he's writing to believers to do not love the world. Do not love the world. So this should be an encouragement to your ears, believer. And why is that? Because the one who does the will of God, the one who, who realizes this, who realizes that the, the sin struggle that you have, the evidence of that struggle, the proof of that struggle shows that there is possibly life within you. That the fact that you don't love the things of this world, though you may fall into the world time in, time out, that you don't love the world. You don't stay there. You're broken over this struggle. You're broken over this toil. You're not at peace with your sin. You're not at peace with the world. But rather you hate this, this, this nature that is toiling and fighting against the spirit within you. That this war that's within you, you're not at peace with. And that's what he's doing here in this book here is showing that if you don't love the world, if you do not love these things, if you're not at peace with this, then that shows here that the love of God is in you. Because only the love of God produces a hatred for sin. And this is supposed to be an encouragement to realize this, this battle that I have, this toil that I have, it shows, yes, Lord, my only solution is in the Christ that saved me. And so he wants to write to believers, because do not love the world because you will be tempted to do so. But realize when that temptation comes to crucify the flesh and to find your hope in the spirit. That you're no longer enslaved to your sin, but now you're a warrior because you fight your sin. Because you're a slave to Christ. That this sign is meant to grant assurance as you see the spirit's work in your life. John Bunyan put it this way. I contemporize the language, but he says, it is a rare thing for some Christians to see their graces. Are you catch that? It's a rare thing for Christians to see their graces. Like we, we don't see the grace of God working in us. It's, it's, it's rare to see that. But a thing very common for such to see their sins. Yea, and to fill them too in their lust and desires to the shaking of their souls. So he says this, question. But since I have lusts and desires both ways, how shall I know to which my soul adheres? Because I have desires both ways, how do I know where my soul is at? He answers this way with two things. First, which would you have prevail? The desires of the flesh or the lust of the spirit? Whose side are you on? Does your soul now inwardly say with strong indignation, oh, let God let grace, let my desires that are good prevail against my flesh for Jesus Christ's sake? When you see this, this struggle, what do you say? Do you realize and you say, oh, that my flesh, that flesh would die and that the spirit would prevail? And then he says, Sec secondly, what kind of secret wishes do you have in your soul? That when you face the lust of your flesh, what do you say? Do you inwardly say with indignation against sin, oh, that I might never, never feel one such more emotion again? Do you hate that emotion? Oh, that my soul were so full of grace that there might be no longer room for even the least amount of lust to come into my thoughts. 
You get what he's saying here. He says, there's two of me. So what's happening here? And he's saying, how do you respond to that? Do you hate that? Do you grieve that? And even more, do you long for the grace of God to permeate the sin that still remains within you? does it do with our souls so what do you desire what do you lust for what do you love this warning is a very present warning for for all of us that the temptation to love the world and the things of the world it will war against your soul and if you throughout this sermon if you if you listen to this and you thought more about how this person needs to hear this more than how your soul needs to hear this, your soul may also need to hear this. If you thought more about, oh, this person needs to hear this, than you yourself, then you may have already fallen in to love the world in some areas. And you need to hear this. I need to hear this. And then maybe if you even heard this, and you just heard this and just wrote it off, like, yeah, I need to, don't love the world. Yep, love Christ, amen, let's, Got to get to lunch. You got lunch at 12 o'clock. If that was you, then you also may be loving the world and don't even know it. But believer, all of us need to be warned of this temptation to not love the world. In what ways do your flesh want to cry out and you go after the desires of your eyes and you take comfort in the boast of the pride of life? And the scary part is, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who says they love the world. But really, the proof is in the pudding. How does it come out? What do you lust for? And we spend adequate time addressing the real danger of what not to love, the world. But we would be remiss if we did not address, what do you love? You love Christ. Love Christ. Do you hear me? Love Christ. Do not love the world. But hear me, if a glass is filled up with water, what more can get into it? If the glass is filled with Christ, with the love of who Christ is, what else can consume the glass? If your soul is consumed with the love of God in Christ Jesus, if your soul is pursuing him, being filled with his word, be seeking him as prayer, if your knees are worn out at the cross, if you love this Christ and you pursue him and your soul is filled with what he has done for you and shedding his own blood to the point of death and rising from the grave, if you love and pursue this Christ, there is no room to love the world. Hear this, love Christ. Of course, John says, do not love the world, but we would be remiss if we did not also rightfully affirm to love Christ because he is good, because he will fill and satisfy every craving and every deceitful desire that the world is trying to offer you. But Christ is better. Christ is always better. And so we may, be, we, may we be guarded against these dangerous desires. And may we diligently seek for opportunities in our hearts to give eviction notices to every room that the world tries to take within our soul. And may be renewed with the mind of Christ to love Christ and to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Let's pray. Father, may we be guarded against this, not so that we would be externally righteous and religious, but I pray, God, that we would love you 
you love your son. By the power of your spirit, I pray, God, that we would be hearers of this and doers as well. In Christ's name, amen.